0: Deuteronomy will be our topic this morning as we close our study of the Pentateuch, which means we're closing uh, the first major section of our overview of the whole Bible. Um, But it's more than just the capstone of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy is is not just Moses' final word. Uh, John Scott Redd, who's an RTS professor, I believe, in in Washington, D.C., writes the Book of Deuteronomy constitutes the theological core of the Old Testament. It is the engine that is ignited and fueled by the stories of the Pentateuch and whose motion drives the subsequent histories, prophecies, and teachings that come after it. In other words, the book of Deuteronomy is really important uh, what dr what Dr. Red is saying there is that it is the the capstone of everything that came before. It's built on all of the stories that we know well from Genesis, Exodus, not so much Leviticus and Numbers. And it is the, the, the track by which everything that comes after in the history of Israel will be judged. He, he writes, it prepares readers to encounter the former prophets, by which he means Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. So he's saying, it sets you up for the historical books. And it lays the theological foundation for how God will evaluate the people in their subsequent history, and we'll talk about this more, I guess, in a couple months when we get to the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. But in short, those books are an evaluation of the kings, specifically according to the laws that are set down in Deuteronomy. Uh, to put that, in other words, Deuteronomy is based on everything that has come before it in the Old Testament, and is the basis on which everything that af- comes after it will be judged. It is the third most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. The top two would, of course, be the book of Psalms, um, the most commonly quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament being Psalm 110.1, uh, and then the second most quoted would be Isaiah, but right after it is the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, you may recall Jesus's temptation with Satan in, uh, in in the in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, and he re, he rebuffs Satan three times when Satan comes to him with temptations. And all three passages of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes in that instance are from the book of Deuteronomy. When the Lord Jesus is asked in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter twelve and verse twenty eight, which is the first and greatest commandment? He responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, we, we, we recite uh, and, and confess the Apostles' Creed often, or the Nicene Creed. That would have been the Old Testament Jews' Creed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's Deuteronomy 6.4. And Jesus says that is the first and greatest commandment in all of the law. Deuteronomy is a big deal. In fact, it is such a big deal that if you were so inclined to use the next several weeks off that we have from this study to go and review a book that we have studied so far, I would recommend Deuteronomy. It is uh, a very helpful book that will a deep dive on would serve you well in our coming studies. Uh, I've heard it said, although I can't remember exactly where from, that Deuteronomy may be a collection of sermons that Moses preached at the tail end of their wilderness wandering. I'm not sure how entirely true that is, but it is helpful because it does frame it as Moses setting up and preparing the people for entering into the promised land, which is absolutely going on. The thing I quibble about is whether or not these are full length sermons that he would have preached. But the, conceptually, I think that's, that's a good way to think about it. Um, there's actually a theological significance to the Pentateuch ending with Deuteronomy because Israel and uh, the Israel at the end of the five books of Moses has not yet entered the promised land that they have been told about this whole time. That is the significance while these events recorded in the Pentateuch are real and historical events that happen to real historical people they 're not limited in application to them they come to us today who are also awaiting our entrance into the promised land. We've said for the last several weeks that the the promised land of Canaan is real, it's true, it's a, it's a legitimate promise, but it is a type. It is a foreshadow of our hope of eternal life in the in the world to come. And again, you can look at this for yourselves. This is the way the New Testament interprets these books. This is what the author to Hebrews says in Hebrews 11:39 to 40. Would somebody please read those verses for us? Hebrews 11, 39 to 40. Ms. Beringer, go for it. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Yeah. The, the better promise, the better fulfillment is... All of God's people, from the Old Testament period and up to our day and beyond our day, should the Lord tarry, all of us gathered together to worship Him in, in, in one place as one unit. That is that is the the doctrine of the the invisible church, right? That is that is what we we say when we sing the doxology. Praise Him, he, praise Him, all ye creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. The whole of God's people, all praising him. That is what we look forward to. Uh, there are lots more detailed outlines that, that I could give of this book than the one that I've given up here, but I think it is helpful just for trying to cover this in one uh, fell swoop to think about it in these big three sections. There's chapter 1 to 443 is the historic prologue. Chapter 444 to 26 is the prescriptions, and then these are the subdivides that we'll get to when we get there. And then chapter 27 to 34 are the promises. Um, a lot of people, a lot of scholars, and I think they're right about this, believe that the book of Deuteronomy is structured as a covenant. It's structured as a covenant between God and his people. And so when you when you have a covenant, the prologue, what it serves to do is to introduce the two parties and their relationship. I am the Lord your God You are my people. This is our relationship. And that's what's really established here. The prescriptions would be the terms of the covenant. What is expected, especially of the people. And you see here, it's keeping the the law of the Lord. It's it's honoring the Ten Commandments. And then the promises would be, uh, these are who are in the covenant. These are the expectations of the covenant. covenant. And then the promises would cover uh, what will happen should these be kept and what will happen should they be broken. That is the overall structure of the book. And so we'll start with the historic prologue. This section basically recapitulates, that is, it it uh, re-explains a lot of what we covered last week in the book of Numbers. And so we'll be fairly brief here, but if you have uh, your Bible open to Deuteronomy, look at chapter 1, verse 8, where uh, Moses writes, See, I have set the land before you, Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So so this, this section is beginning by calling to mind the covenant made all the way back in Genesis with Abram. When, when God sovereignly called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of his pagan worship and said, Leave your father's house, leave this land and go to the land that I will show you. And then he blessed him with Isaac, the son of the promise, and Jacob and so on. God has brought them out of Egypt, and, and he picks up in numbers where Deuteronomy uh, picks up in numbers, where Deuteronomy one verse nine references the entire 11th chapter of numbers. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to carry you by myself. This is, this is a direct quotation of what, of what Moses said when they were leaving the camp at Sinai and preparing the journey into the promised land that we looked at last week. And so what we see here in the opening chapter is that even though God's people did not earn their way into covenant with God, yet he makes one with them. In fact, they earned his wrath and curse. We saw that again and again in the book of Numbers. And God has remained gracious nonetheless. And and he brings that out here. Remember, we saw that Israel was was so cantankerous that Moses, three days into the journey, what did he he ask the Lord to do three days in? Does anybody remember? Kill me now if I have to minister to your people for the rest of my days. Let, let Let the culmination of that be right now. And yet, as difficult as they were, God remains faithful. Then in verse uh, 19 of chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, I'm just, again, trying to show you that he's bringing to mind all this stuff. We see the, 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 the biggest offense of Israel. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all the great ter- uh, and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way of the hill country of the Amorites that the Lord God commanded us. And we went to Kadesh of Barnea. Am I in the wrong chapter for that? I believe so. Sorry about that. He goes on, though, to explain that, that they set up spies. Yeah, see, the Lord our God has, has set the land before you. Verse 21. I go up and take possession of the Lord, as the Lord God of your fathers had said. Do not fear or dismay. Then all of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us. So they're sending out the spies to explore the land. And, and what happens? They hear the, They hear the report of the spies. The land is good. But the men are too mighty. We, we cannot overtake it. We cannot overtake it. And so they were told that that generation that failed to believe the promises of God would not enter into the promised land. They were told that that generation would die in the wilderness wanderings. Uh, what do you suppose, anybody might be the theological significance of that? The, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back was failure to believe God's promises. What do you think might be the significance of that for us today? Go ahead. I believe in uh, trusting this instead of worldly things versus that of God's. Okay, the The warning to not trust worldly things, but to trust the promises of God. Anybody else want to give it a step? What might be the significance that, that God said, for not believing my promises, you will not receive the blessings. The blessings of God are not received in direct correlation to our keeping of the law. The blessings of God are received by faith. And because they were not a faithful generation, because they did not believe, because they did not trust the promises of God, they would not receive the promised blessing. You receive all of the promises of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 20, all of the promises of God are, are yes and amen in him. And that's such a huge point for us to get straight now because there are so many people, even in Calvinistic uh, Christian circles, that that, that that get this wrong. And they, they want to say that the entire Old Testament is somehow a covenant of works that, that we don't need to worry about. Even Reformed types will say this. And that, that we only need to be concerned with the New Testament. But that is that is not how the bible sets it out the old testament the book of deuteronomy even is an administration of the covenant of grace yes works are required but the works are required as a as a outworking of our faith paul would say in ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your not of yourself lest anyone should boast then he says for So this happened, you were saved by grace through faith for this purpose, unto good works, for we are his workmanship to work out the works that he has prepared for us beforehand. So don't hear me saying that it's only about uh, faith and that works don't have anything to do with it. Works are the necessary result of faith. Does that make sense? The blessings come through the faith and because the faith is real, it works itself out. But the works are not what earn our salvation or even maintain it with God. Rather, they are, as I just said, the necessary outworking. They are the necessary outworking. So the relationship dynamics are set up in this historic prologue. I am the Lord your God. You are my people. Trust me and you will receive the promised blessing. That is the relationship that God has set up with Israel. It is an administration of the covenant of grace. Now we'll move on into the prescriptions. Uh, Obviously, uh, going from chapter 4 to chapter 26, this is the longest portion of the book. Um, And it covers in depth, as you'll see here, the the Ten Commandments. Uh, And so because we've spent kind of our whole summer on that, we won't go in depth on each one of these, but we'll make a few observations. Um, the, The civil law and the ceremonial law do not make up this section. It is all moral law. Uh, as a side note, uh, it has been argued by some Christians that we give an undue attention to the moral law just because we like it better, because we find it more agreeable. Well, no, we focus on the moral law because the Bible focuses on the moral law. That is why we give it so much attention. Uh, again, quoting Dr. Redd, he says, The law of Moses reiterates here for the people of God, that it is not a means by which they earn their redemption from slavery or the presence of the Lord in their midst. These blessings belong to them as God's people. The instruction of Deuteronomy explains theologically what these events mean for Israel as God's people, and it offers a faithful, inspired guide for how Israel ought to respond to their singular, holy, and loving covenant Lord. Again, that's a very sophisticated way of saying what we've been saying all along. These are not the way to get to God. These are the necessary fruits of walking with God. What he's saying is that these laws are how God's people are to live in response to the reality of being his people. Not to become his people or even to remain as such. Rather, by living this way, they demonstrate that they are God's people. And so we've got here the, the breakdown of, of the Ten Commandments um, that, that is worked through in this section. And I'll just point out, uh, for example, what, some of you may not be able to see the numbers, but the longest attention by far is given to the first commandment. Why do you think that is? Why would that one receive, I mean, five times as much as the second and, and on down the line? Yeah, James. James. Focuses on God and like your attention given to Him, so of course it's the most important. Yeah. What is the first commandment, Jack? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Right. So that would be the summary that Jesus gives of the of the first four Uh, in in the in the in the in tablets that God wrote with His own finger. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The reason that's given such preeminence is that if we don't get that one right. Like James was saying, we can't do the rest. If we always have competing gods, competing affections in our hearts, we, we will not keep the rest. Let me direct you uh, in, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy to the formal conclusion of this section. Again, we won't, we won't rehash all of them, but if you flip over to Deuteronomy 26, would somebody please read for us verses 16 to 19. This is the end of the section on the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy twenty six, beginning in verse sixteen. Mr. Johnson. Nineteen. Yep. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God, and that you will walk in His ways, and keep His statutes and His commandments and His rules, and will obey His voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for His treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he was sent to you in praise and in fame and honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. So that's, that's God summarizing the covenant relationship uh, and, and what's expected. He says, you have declared today that the Lord is your God verse 17 and that you will walk in his statutes and keep his ways. What's he mean? He means these. He means everything he just said for the whole last section. And so uh, I've, I've made this over and over again, but it's important to bear out. These are the evidence that your profession is sincere. I have said the God, the Lord is my God, and because he is my God, I will live this way. uh I, we want to avoid the, the, the two ditches that, that so many sincere evangelical Christians fall into because they'll do one of two things with this. They'll either say uh, the law is everything. You, you, you must do these to be a Christian. That would be called legalism. That your right standing before God is contingent on your keeping these commands. We don't want to go there. Because that's a denial of grace. But we also don't want to go the other way and say, because I have grace, therefore I don't need to worry about this. That would be what we call anti-nomianism, anti-law. No, we want to be a people that understand that if we are to be God's people, we are to bear the marks of God. That is, as we have hammered home, and and Josiah Swan about I'm going to put you on the spot. What is the moral law of God based on? God's character. Therefore, if we are God's people, who should we be living like? God. Right. And that's what this is. That's the point. That's the relationship that we have to the law. And so let's uh, move on then to our final section, uh, chapters 27 to 34, the promises, uh, the, 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 the outworking, what, what we can expect of this covenant, whether it is kept or broken. In short, the promises are laid out and really in 27 to 29, and they're fairly simple. If the covenant is kept, there will be blessing. If, if we remain faithful to the Lord, he will bless us. If the covenant is broken, they will be cursed because they will manifest that they are not believing the promises of God. There, there, there's nothing really super complicated here. But what's the problem? We We can't keep this perfectly. We break it every day, multiple times a day, every hour, if we're really honest with ourselves. There's, there's no way to avoid breaking the law of God. So then what do we do to keep the covenant? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 4. And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So when you remember everything that we've said, you will inevitably remember, I failed, I fell short. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. In other words, when we remember, which we inevitably will, that we have fallen short, that we have by our lives manifest lack of faith. We repent and we come back to the Lord and he is gracious and long-suffering and delights to show mercy. That's not a New Testament, new innovation. That's always been there. That's always been the bedrock of our relationship to God Live out your salvation in fear and trembling. And when you, re- when you recall shortfallings, don't feel that you have lost the Lord. Return to him in repentance and faith, and he will restore you. The last thing I'll note is the ending of Deuteronomy. It ends in a really, really wonderful and powerful way. It closes with, with Moses, this, this great and mighty prophet who has led the people of Israel For so long, and he leads them in chapter 32 in one final song of worship. And he blesses them just as Jacob blessed the 12 tribes at the end of Genesis. And then in chapter 33, he's appointed Joshua to succeed him. And he dies. The great and final promise of Deuteronomy is that Moses will not lead the people into the Promised Land. Because he also failed. But God's people will still go as they follow Joshua. Which is not an incidental name. In the Bible, names have meaning. They have significance. Joshua means Yahweh or Jehovah saves. You enter the promised land following the one who saved you. Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek name, Jesus. Joshua would be the, the Hebrew pronunciation of the name of our Lord Jesus. We enter the promised land by following Jesus. Jesus' name means the exact same thing. What did the angel tell Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. So we enter the promised land by following not a man, no matter how great and mighty of a teacher and leader he may be, but we enter by following the Lord Jesus. He carries us home. Let's pray. God in heaven we thank you for the wonderful blessing that is your word and the truth that it reveals to us about you and, and your love and your mercy and your grace to us as your people. And we pray Lord that as Israel entered Canaan following the one whose name means you save, that we would also be those who would enter the new heavens and the new earth following the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus, who is the Savior of sinners such as us. We ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.